Well, good evening. Good evening and welcome to Calvary Chapel. You can find your seats. Well, I hope you're all doing well. Say amen. Not convincing, but uh, we'll try again. Say amen. 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 Much better. You can turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. I can't believe within a couple of weeks we're going to be done in this series of studies, and we'll be moving on to 2 John, 3 John, and then Jude. But uh, for this evening, we're in chapter 4, and we've started this section already because we talked about the conditions for fellowship, then we talked about the concerns for fellowship, And last week, we started talking about the character of fellowship, and this evening we pick it up with the second half of the character of fellowship, really dealing with this idea that, you know, our fellowship, we should have the character and the nature of Christ within our hearts and within our fellowship. And and that's really what we're being encouraged by John to think about and to apply. Now, last week, we talked about the fact that children of God, or we should at least live like children of God, and certainly love like children of God. To live and love like the children of God. But now we pick it up, and our themes for this evening are living in the Spirit of God and loving as the Son of God. So we're going to start with living in the Spirit of God and what that means in 1 John chapter 4 and in verse 1. And with that, let's open in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you do wondrous works in our midst, that you do awesome things in our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you are always willing to work despite our resistance, reluctance, or even disobedience. You desire to do a work that is mighty and powerful. We we desire for you to do that work in our hearts this evening. So we open our hearts to you, ask you to speak to us from your word, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, First uh, John chapter 4, verse 1. We read there, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Just to be clear, that's the spirit of Antichrist that is in the world, not the Antichrist himself. But as we talk about this, we understand living in the Spirit of God requires the children of God, all of us, test every spiritual message, every teaching, every experience with God's Word. There has been untold damage done to Christians and even to church families, church fellowships, simply because certain teachings, messages, or experiences were not tested against the Word of God. They weren't brought before the truth of God's word and tested to see if they are from God. That is essential. That is something that you and I, we have to do. I don't care how much you like the pastor, 
I don't care if you like what I have to say or don't like what I have to say. The bottom line is whatever I say, whatever any one of us says, whatever any pastor says, it must be tested against the word of God. It must be tested to see whether the message, the teaching, or the experience that you're sharing is truly from God. I think you should just naturally be skeptical of everything. Can I say that? That may not sound very spiritual. But people get led astray because they're not skeptical. I know in the Northeast we tend to be skeptical by nature, and especially in New Jersey and especially North Jersey. And that's probably a good thing spiritually. Every time I hear of something miraculous or a healing or something, would it surprise you that my first instinct is to not believe it? Would that surprise you? I'm not one of those people that, I'm not gullible, and I'm not one of those people that just assume that because someone told me something happened, it actually happened. Now, I'm willing to believe, don't get me wrong, because God's word says certain things can happen. I'm willing to believe, but I'm skeptical because so much of what we've seen in the church throughout the decades that I've been involved, and certainly even before then, is really just not true. And that disturbs me. Now, I know a lot of what God does is miraculous, and it it is true. And if it's tested and found to be true, praise God. I'm open to whatever God wants to do. But I'm not willing to just believe anything. So I am by nature a skeptic. And I think it's probably helpful for you spiritually if you are at least a little skeptical. We are called to be skeptical of the messengers or the teachers that claim divine authority. Always be skeptical of anything I say. Always. I'm, I'm, if I haven't given you permission already, please, you have permission to call into question anything I tell you. In fact, I would like it very much if you did. I spend an enormous amount of time making sure that the things that I share that are in my notes are from God and according to his word. And so I have no problem saying to you, Look into these things that I share with you. Please do, and make sure that they are from God. I think of, and I was just studying this recently, there was a group of people that Paul ministered to on his second missionary journey. They were from Berea, and they were called the Bereans. And after Paul and Silas, after they left Thessalonica, they went to Berea, and they said, it said, the scripture said that the the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because... They searched the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. So I am telling you, be a Berean. Be the kind of person that is not only skeptical, but looks into these things. You can't just be skeptical and then not look into them. You have to look and to see if what is being taught is being shared is actually from God. Now, Israel was commanded to deal harshly with false prophets. You know that, right? If you want to look into it in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, they were to test anything that was said, and if the prophet was found to be false, he was put to death. Now imagine now, let's not get extreme, but let's just say that any pastor who was found to share a false prophecy, a dream that wasn't really true, or some word from God found to be false, was maybe not stoned to death, but maybe just lost his job. Let's go that far. Let's just say that if someone were to say, well, Pastor Tim, what you shared, that message is contrary to God's spirit. And let's say that I was unwilling to repent. I think at that point, it probably behooves the board and others to just remove me as the pastor. I should not be allowed 
to say things that are obviously not in accordance from God's word, not from God. So what if we said to all pastors, teachers, ministers, evangelists, missionaries, if you do that and you're unwilling to recant it, you lose your job. I'm not saying put them to death, okay? That's, that's extreme. Imagine what would happen in terms of purity in the church. So I think we have to live like that. I think we should expect that from our teachers and our leaders. We should. Now, the messengers who bring the quote-unquote word of God, they could be, if they're not from God, they could be demonic, they could be self-deluded, but both are false. I mean, you have people that think what they're saying is God's word. You have people that the devil is speaking through and people think what they're saying is God's word. You need to be careful. And we are, brothers and sisters, called to expose those that could lead us astray. In fact, that's why John wrote this epistle. One of the reasons he wrote it was just to make sure that no one could lead them astray. If you don't believe that, look at 26 of chapter 2. John says, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. So there's nothing wrong with that. Some pastors will actually tell you, and listen, I think of a couple who are attending our church now who told me that the church they were attending previously uh, had a pastor who would say things like that, that if you challenged him, he would, he would, you know, give you a bad time, you know, call you out, say you were being rebellious if you challenged him from God's word. So obviously they don't attend that church anymore. And good thing. That would mean that that person is actually trying to lead you astray. And John doesn't want that. We don't want that. We can recognize the Spirit of God by his consistency with God's word. That is the litmus test. Remember the litmus test? I don't know if you were in high school and you had that little paper. It was blue or pink, depending on what you put on the paper. The litmus test tells you whether it's an acid or whether it's a base, right? You know, you do that. But the Word of God is the litmus test. Take whatever said, measure it against the Word of God, test it against the Word of God. Because this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Notice, every, in verse 2, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The Word of God tells us that Christ came in the flesh. So any spirit that says otherwise is not from God. Very simple litmus test, really. The Holy Spirit will never inspire anything that is contrary to the truth of God's Word. So if you say, oh, the Spirit told me, and what the Spirit allegedly told you conflicts and is contrary to God's word, I'm going to say no. He didn't. You either made it up in your head, or somebody else is leading you astray, or you're just trying to lead others astray. See, the word of God testifies to the truth of Jesus' incarnation, that is, he became a man as the Messiah of Israel. That's what the word of God teaches us in John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. He became the word, became flesh, and made his dwelling with us. So anyone who says otherwise is not from God. Now, the Spirit will always testify that Jesus is both Lord, that is God, and Savior, that is man. So if anyone says to you that, well, he was a good man, he was the Savior of the world, like the Mormons might tell you, well, that's not all of the truth. The whole truth is he's both God and man. And if some would say, well, he was God, but he really didn't become a man, like the Gnostics who said that he didn't really have a body, then that is false teaching as well. And so we can recognize the spirit of Antichrist, how? By its refusal to acknowledge Jesus, the Son of God. See, Jesus is at the center of the foundations of our faith, who Jesus is, what the Word teaches about Jesus. 
So there have been many, many cults over the years that have tried to change the definition or the, uh, the, the nature of Christ. They, they've come along and they say, well, he wasn't really man. He wasn't really God. He wasn't really real. Uh, he, you know, he was neither of those things. You know, all of that is just ridiculous, and we should reject it. So the spirit of Antichrist will uh, never promote a biblical view of the nature of Jesus. The spirit of Antichrist will never do that. In fact, every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So that's a good litmus test for you. Now, moving away from that for just a minute, notice that the spirit, this spirit, the spirit of Antichrist, that is, instead of Christ or against Christ, because that's what Antichrist can mean, This spirit will seek to deny the truth of Jesus' incarnation as the Messiah of Israel. One of the things that the spirit of Antichrist that that John was dealing with, this sort of Gnostic teaching, one of the things that was clear is that they were trying to tell everyone that Jesus never really came in the body, never in the flesh. They denied Christ's incarnation. They believed that all matter, including the body, was evil. And that's how they got around living sinful lives because they simply said when they sinned, well, that's just my body and my body is evil and it doesn't matter. So that's what John is dealing with, as I've shared with you before. Now, Jesus, Paul, Peter, and others all taught about the coming of the spirit of Antichrist. And I don't think it is a stretch to say this, and I think you can give me an amen. The spirit of Antichrist is alive and well in our culture today. Amen? It's clear. Instead of Christ, against Christ, so much of the world is following the spirit of Antichrist, so much of the world. So, what do we do? Well, the children of God, well, we have to live in the the spirit of God. We have to live in the spirit of God. Children of God have overcome, though, understand this, we've overcome the children of error, and we've done this through the power of the spirit within us. We have done this through the power of the spirit within us. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us by faith. So that empowers us to be overcomers. So look what it says in verses 4 through 6. You, dear children, are from God. You have overcome them, that is, the children of error, the spirit of Antichrist, right? You have overcome them because, and here's why, the one who is in you, that's the spirit of God, is greater than the one who is in the world, that's the spirit of Antichrist. Amen? Isn't it good to know that the spirit of God who is in you is greater than the spirit of Antichrist? See, as the world begins its machinations, as the world begins to try to turn things towards, you know, a global system and and anti-Christian thinking and destroy freedom and liberty and all of these things that we see happening in our culture and in our country today, it doesn't change the fact that the Spirit of God within us is greater than that Spirit. Oh, Pastor Tim, we can't do anything, you know, it's it's beyond hope, we have no power to... That's baloney. That is not something you need to say out loud. It is not true. Because as we've already read, greater, notice, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So, so you know that. So what are you worried about? Well, the world, the world's going, yeah, the world is, is destined for destruction, but the Spirit of God dwells in you by faith. You've overcome already. Notice that's past tense. We already have the victory, just as Christ was victorious over the prince of this world. So we're we're not uh, not living 
with the danger or the risk of being defeated, we have already overcome. Amen? Understand that. We have the Holy Spirit living in us while they have the spirit of a defeated foe. It's not even close. We can recognize the children of God, though. We can recognize the children of God versus the children of error. And we've got into this already. Notice it says in verse 5, They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. Isn't that something? We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood or fake news. You see, you see, what you're dealing with here is there are two spirits in the world. There's the spirit of truth, who is the Holy Spirit, and the spirit of falsehood, the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of error. That spirit is the spirit that every night on cable network news tells you things that aren't true. Whether it's about the virus, whether it's about our culture, whether it's about our president, whether it's about our Congress, there is a spirit of Antichrist out there telling you things that aren't true, trying to make you very afraid, by the way. We're going to see perfect love cast out fear. Here's what I want you to understand. You have to listen to the right spirit. You have to listen to the Holy Spirit. The spirit of Antichrist will lead you astray, and John wrote this so that you wouldn't be led astray. So, here's what we have. We can recognize the children of God versus the children of error. It should be very easy for us as children of God, living in the spirit of God, to recognize what's true and what's false. Amen? It should be easy. Have you ever felt when you're hearing some of this nonsense promoted uh, through our culture, have you ever stopped and said, how is it that no one can see how obviously wrong these people are? Have you ever said, how is it that they can even promote this stuff? It's so clear. It's, It's false, right? Have you ever said that? But that's because you have these glasses that the Holy Spirit has given you, right? If I take off my glasses right now, I'm not going to be able to discern who you are because I'm nearsighted. So I need my glasses to say, oh, okay, I know who Teresa is. I know who Sal is. I take them off. I might get them confused. But we have these glasses, right, for those of us who are nearsighted or farsighted, that give us the clarity of sight to be able to discern one thing from another. You have been given the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, in your heart by faith. So when you look at a situation or hear network news or or hear cable network news, you know that what they're saying isn't true. And you get frustrated and you get angry because you can't believe anyone would believe it. But the spirit of Antichrist and the spirit of error says things that aren't true. And the people that don't know God and don't have the spirit just say, oh, okay, I guess so. Oh, maybe that's true. Oh, oh, well, now that you say that, I guess I better believe that. And whatever it is that that, that you're being told, you should be skeptical of everything. I already told you you should be skeptical of me. So how much more should you be skeptical of our government? I didn't say you should try to overthrow it. I said you should be skeptical of it, right? You should be skeptical of the government. You should be skeptical of the news. You should be skeptical of everything, and especially those things in the world. And you're going to find most of it is just false. So I'm encouraged because I'm like, oh, maybe I'm not the only one that sees what's going on here. 
So as I read this, I realize that's why you and I are so frustrated. That's why you and I, when we hear these things, our reaction is, is, is one of astonishment and bewilderment because we can't believe that people can't see the truth. But you can. You see, we can recognize the children of error. The children of error have the, have the spirit of falsehood. As I like to say, you know, you, you know how you can tell when a politician is lying? They're moving their lips. Generally, there are some rare exceptions to that. They belong to this world. They belong to its wicked ways. They speak the language of the world. Then they have an earthly perspective. The world listens to what they have to say as they speak its native tongue. Now, the children of God, we have the spirit of truth. Amen? So, what does that mean? Well, we belong to God in his righteous ways. Very different. A very different thing. We speak the language of the Spirit. We have an eternal perspective. God's children listen to what we have to say as they speak our heavenly tongue. So yes, the world is pretty much divided into two groups. The world does not listen to what we have to say. They don't understand it. They can't see it. Don't be frustrated with them. The truth is they don't know the truth because the truth has been hidden from them because they're Minds and their eyes are darkened. They are blinded to the truth because without the Holy Spirit, you will surely be deceived by the spirit of Antichrist and the spirit of error, the spirit of this age. So that's what it means to live in the spirit of God. And that's, and that's what happens when we do. We, we can see things clearly. And thank God for that, right? There was this sci-fi movie on, I don't know, probably 20 years ago. And I can't remember, it was called Them or something like that. Anyway, the, the, these guys, and I don't suggest you get the movie or watch it. I'm just, just pointing out, there were these aliens that had infiltrated the, 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 uh, the country or had infiltrated the world, and someone created a set of glasses. They were like sunglasses, and if you put them on, you could see that they were aliens. But if you didn't have these glasses, you couldn't see it. And every time I see that movie or every time I think about that movie, I say, that's exactly what the world is today. It's infiltrated by demonic spirits, and it's like, because we're spiritual beings and we have the glasses, if you will, the eyes to see, the spirit within us, we look and we're like, you can't see that that person might as well have horns and a pitchfork? You can't see that they're lying through their teeth? You can't tell that what they're saying isn't true? And they say, no, looks looks okay to me. So that's what it makes me think of, but I'm a sci-fi geek. So we've talked about living in the Spirit of God. Let's talk about loving as the Son of God, because that's how we respond to the culture. See, it's really easy for me to say something like that, and then the next thing is, okay, so let's get our pitchforks and our, you know, farming tools and storm the castle. But that's not the answer. It's to love as the Son of God. How did Jesus deal with the spirit of Antichrist in his age? With love. See, this is where a lot of Christians get it wrong. Just because they can see what's right and what's wrong, just because they can see the truth, they begin to take matters in their own hands and start to become violently aggressive toward falsehood. And that is not what we're called to do. We are called to love those in the world. We're to love as the Son of God. Look at verses 7 through 12. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. 
He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. That is, it's revealed through us. So you see, you can't see God, but you can see God in us. You know what you're going to find if you love those crazy people who can't see the truth? If you actually love them? They may not see the truth, but they'll see the truth in you. But it's only going to happen if you love like Jesus loves. And as they recognize, as they realize that you truly love them, even if they think you're crazy for believing the things you believe, they'll know that you care about them. They'll know that you love them. And that may just soften their hearts and open their eyes to the truth. But I can promise you this, I can tell you this, if you put a sign out in front of your house that says, I'm a Christian and I hate everybody that isn't, that nobody's going to hear what you have to say. I mean, not that a, a sign like that actually exists, although there are some churches, like that West Barrel Baptist Church, you hear about them all the time, and they're, all they're known for is hate. I can look at that, test that against the Word of God, and say those people are off their rockers. I can tell you that whatever it is they're teaching in that church, it's false. Amen? Because God is love. Oh, pastor, they're only telling the truth. Listen, we're supposed to tell the truth in love. So if something they say is true, it doesn't mean that they're doing what God has called them to do either. You just understand that. And so here we are, we're looking at this, and we realize children of God know that they're called to love one another. Do you know that's your weapon? It's love. It's not really a weapon, actually. It brings healing. It really is the two-edged sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and the love of God piercing the heart with the truth of God. That's how lives are changed. You might actually have someone say to you, you know, I think everything you believe is ridiculous, but I know you love me. That can soften the heart. And people who know you care about them are generally willing to at least hear you out. And that's what we're called to do. We know that God is love and that this love comes from him. Everything we're talking about comes from God. Those that do not know God, uh, well, listen, those that love do know God. And those that do not know God, well, they don't love. And that's what John wants us to know. Those that love do know God and are his children. And those that do not love do not know God, nor are they his children. Very simple litmus test. Do you love? Do you love others? Because if you don't love others, you're you're not of God. That's what John is saying. Divided right down the middle, that's what he's saying. We know that God revealed his love and himself to the world through his son, Jesus Christ. So if you are a Christian, a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, and you're not loving, you're not a disciple of Christ. Newsflash. You may think you are, you may say you are. The Gnostics said they were, but they weren't. There are so many people confused about their identity in our culture today. But there are many Christians that are confused about their identity as well. That is to say, they think they're followers of Christ, but they're not. Why? Because they don't love people. They don't love people. So we've talked about the importance of truth, but now we're talking about the importance of love. Both are essential. He sent his one and only son into the world to be the savior of the world. He loved us despite our sins. He sent Jesus to die as payment for our sin. Can you, can you top that? that? That is the greatest love the universe has ever known. 
God demonstrated that love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yet sinners. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You have to look at that kind of love and say, that is what the world should see in me and through me. That's what we're called to do. We know that God gave us a wonderful example of love for us to follow. That example is Jesus. We're called to love others with the same love that God has given to us. I mean, that's what we've read there in verses 11 through 12, basically. I'm summing up what John has already shared. I mean, we're called to reveal his love to the world by loving one another. The the world will know that you're my disciples by your signs and your anger and your hostility and your penchant for the truth. No, for for your love one for another. By your love one for another. No mortal has ever seen God. Few have ever seen the, the Son of God. But the entire world may see God living in us today and forever. That, that's something we're looking to accomplish, that people would see Christ in us. Amen? Tell me amen. That's what we want. We want people to see Christ in us, right? I mean, that is the goal here. <laughs> we're called to reveal his love to the world by loving one another, and that is the goal. And we're never nearer to God than when we are loving others. You want to be close to God? You want to be close to God? Say amen. amen. Love one another. You know, it was said that John, as he got older, he spent a lot of time in Ephesus, which is in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. It's in sort of western Turkey. It's called proconsular Asia. But he spent a lot of time there later on in life when he was much older, 80s and 90s. And they used to say that he would show up and people, I mean, imagine you know, all the other disciples and apostles had passed on. Many of the first and second generation evangelists and apostles and ministers and pastors had had passed on or been killed and martyred. And John is like this legacy of of a person and everybody knows who he is. And, you know, Peter and Paul are gone at this point, but John is there. And they'd invite John to come and speak. And everyone would get all excited. And John would walk up to the stage and he would get in front of the group of people and they would all wait with bated breath to see what it was that John was going to say. What wisdom will he share with us? And tradition says he would get up and he'd look at everyone in the eye and he would just say, my dear children, love one another. And then he'd go back and sit down. That might have been anticlimactic if I just showed up tonight and did that, Right? And yet the power of that statement is eternal. It, it's, we could talk about it all night, but loving one another is what John wants us to do, and that's what the Spirit has called us to do, and we're never nearer to God than when we do this. Now, children of God also know that God lives in them. And we've talked a little bit about this by the presence of his Holy Spirit. We know God is living in us. We know we're called to love one another, and we think, well, that's really hard, but we know that God lives within us by his Spirit, so it's not hard, it's impossible apart from God. But with God, all things are possible. So we know this. And so we read in verses 13 through 15, we know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. And if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he is and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. That's really kind of saying what we've already said here. But, but let's just take a moment and, and, and dissect that. I mean, 
We do know that the Spirit of God lives in us. God lives in us. We have God within us, in our hearts. We know that God lives in us by the Holy Spirit who he gave us. The scriptures tell us this. And how do we know that? Well, there's the fruit of his Spirit. In our lives, it confirms with the children of God, the fruit of the Spirit, the character attributes of what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those things are in our lives because God is in our lives. And then there's the gifts of the Spirit. Now, the fruit of the Spirit has to do with who we are in Christ. The gifts of the Spirit have to do with how we minister to others in the power of the Spirit. So the gifts of the Spirit, whether it's teaching or encouragement or any other gift that God may give to you, those gifts confirm that we're God's children. The fact that we can minister to others at all shows us that God lives in us. So be encouraged as you become more like him. As you minister to others, you can see that's the Spirit of God in my life. How do I know I'm filled with the Spirit, Pastor Tim? How do I know? That's how you know. Look for the fruit of the Spirit. Look for the gifts of the Spirit. And we know that God the Father sent God the Son to save us from our sins. Amen? We know that. I mean, the Holy Spirit's revealed this to us, and we testify to this truth in our lives. That's why it says in verse 14, we have seen and testified that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And he goes on, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him, and he in God. So do you acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God? Amen? Then God lives in you. No one calls him Lord but by his Spirit. The Spirit lives in you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. It is that simple. The Holy Spirit has revealed this to us. We testify to this truth in our lives. And this is only true if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. There were a lot of people at that time that didn't. But we do. And John did. And those true believers at that time did. And so we, like them, need to live our lives loving others. Now, the children of God also know that God loves them and that he has spared them from judgment. See, the world is worried about judgment, but Christians should never be worried about God's judgment. Oh, I don't want anything bad to happen. I don't want God to punish me. God's not going to punish you or judge you because he's already judged Jesus on the cross for your sins. That doesn't mean there aren't consequences to your actions. But it's not God judging you it's you doing things you shouldn't and perhaps suffering the consequences. That's, that's life. But God isn't going to punish you or judge you. We've been spared from that. Look what it says in verses 16 through 18. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. He's repeated that a number of times. Wherever, or excuse me, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love, that is God's love, drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. See, the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of the world, the spirit of error, wants you to be afraid all the time. Why is that? Because people who are afraid are very easy to control. They're very easy to manipulate. They're very easy to direct, instruct, and make do what others want them to do. Just make someone afraid, and they're liable to do whatever you ask them to do. It's almost a form of hypnosis. 
Just make people afraid of getting sick, and you can take away their freedoms. Just make someone afraid of something and losing their job, and they'll violate their convictions, their own personal convictions about vaccines or something else. Just, just make people afraid, and you'll see how quickly you can control them. But see, here's the truth. Christians don't need to be afraid. Amen? Perfect love casts out fear. What are you afraid of? Oh, God may judge me. You don't have to be afraid of that. I mean, if God's not going to judge you for eternity, anything else that could possibly happen to you pales in comparison. So it's a good day every day that you know God isn't going to judge you for your sins. Amen? And that's a good day, right? And yet what is it we're afraid of? Oh, they told me if I go outside my house, it might rain. You know, the other day, it was interesting. I got a good taste of seeing what happens when you watch too much news. On Sunday, uh, everyone was afraid of this hurricane because the media was just talking about hurricane, hurricane, hurricane. I, I used to track hurricanes for a living. I worked for an insurance company for 20 years. I did catastrophe management. I was an analyst. I did this. We tracked earthquakes, all kinds of, you know, terrible disasters. That was my job. And hurricanes are very interesting things because they follow a track. And you can generally predict where they're going. You know where they've been. You can kind of predict where they're going. They have all these programs and modeling that does this. And it's interesting because as I watch the path of the storm, I realize this thing isn't going to come our way. I mean, it could, but generally, statistically speaking, we're going to get some rain. But everyone freaked out, and lots of people were afraid, and church was half full on Sunday. And I know some of that is because people were on vacation, but I think a lot of people just said, oh, I can't leave my house. It might rain. Like, it's rained before. You know, you don't have to start building an ark. It, it, it rains sometimes. And then we hear this other thing, like, you might get sick. You will get sick. Can I tell you that? Here's the newsflash. News At some point in your life, over the next few months, two years, you're going to get sick. How could you say that? Because it's true. Because eventually, you're going to get a cold. And what are you going to do? Freak out? Go get tested 1,700 times? What are you going to do when, not if, you get sick? See, most of us have been so careful that we haven't even gotten sick this last year and a half. Then you get a cold and you're like, I'm going to die. That's what the world wants to do to you. Make you afraid of everything. Perfect love. God's love casts out fear. See, I think Christians should be the bravest, most courageous, not fearful people that you've ever seen. Because if they die or get sick or something happens or a bus runs over them, guess where they are? In the presence of God, without the judgment of God. Have we lost our minds? Yes. Collectively, we've lost our minds because we've gotten our hearts and our minds away from the truth of God's word. You know... Everything people are afraid of right now, they could have been terrified of two, three years ago. But they weren't. And you know why? Because they were probably trusting God or not thinking about it. You are in control of whether or not you trust God with your life. Trust God. Perfect love casts out fear. Amen? So sad to see what the spirit of Antichrist is doing in our world today, but it shouldn't be affecting us. Now, we know that God is love. We can rely on his love for us. We can, because God spared us from judgment. I mean, this is, this is only true 
relying on God is only true if we, if we live in his love and his love lives in us. And I hope that's true in your life. This love is what gives us confidence that we will not be judged in God's presence because God loves us. We know he's not going to judge us because we've given our hearts to Jesus Christ. This love, the love of God, shows that we are his children in the world and that we are like him. So what are you worried about? And who are you listening to? As we've already read, we know that God's love is perfect and that we have no reason to fear his punishment. So if you don't have to fear the judgment of God... What in the world are you afraid of? Perfect love addresses any fear that we may have about death, sickness, or judgment. And this is only true for made perfect in love. Are you made perfect in love? Hey, say amen. Amen. The Gnostics didn't believe that. We do. Well, finally, the children of God know that God commands them to love their brothers. Now, this is the real litmus test. Because if someone says they're a Christian, and they're always afraid all the time, maybe they're just a struggling Christian. You know, maybe, maybe they watch too much cable network news. Maybe they just listen to too much or read too much. But if you don't love your brother, you are not a follower of Christ. It is that simple. You can't hate people and say you're a Christian. How do I know that? Well, let's read verses 19 through 21. As we've already read, the one who fears is not made perfect in love. But look at what he says here in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Pure and simple. So let's end on that encouragement. Children of God know that God commands them to love their brothers. Who is my brother? Who is the one that God is calling me to love? Does he mean my brother like my actual blood, biological or adopted brother? Does he mean all my brothers in the church? I think if you're willing to consider it, and listen to the words of Jesus, and specifically the Sermon on the Mount, I think you'll find that when Jesus talks about loving your brothers, or John writes loving your brothers, he's talking about loving everyone. Can you deal with that? Oh, Pastor Tim, there's some people I can't love. I can't love Nancy Pelosi. You know? Like, it's, it's, you may not like her, But as Christians, it's really hard, but we're called to love. So if you actually had an opportunity to minister to her, let's say for some reason you you actually talked to her, uh, you know, maybe you're getting your hair done in San Francisco and she was there, (laughs) not wearing a mask. And, And, you know, if you actually had the opportunity, what would you do? Would you tell her how much you hate her? You'd probably like to in the flesh, but wait a minute, whoa, whoa. That's the litmus test. I just used an example, a silly example, to kind of make a point. It doesn't matter. It could be your next-door neighbor who, who shovels snow on your side of the wall or blows the leaves every fall on your property or lets all the water from the rain drain onto your property and it goes into your basement. I know none of this stuff ever happens, but brothers and sisters, we're called to love our brothers. And it's hard. Because I actually, you know, I was joking, I wasn't really joking, I was kind of sharing my heart with someone recently about, like, there are, like, a handful of people 
that I truly hated at some point in my life. And I'm aware of it because I know what my heart turned into when I was around them. I mean, it's, it's less than five people. But when I think about them, I think about them. I genuinely do not like them. I never want to see them again. I, I mean it in my heart. I really do. However, having said that, I know the challenge is not necessarily to like them or to not think that they're jerks. It's to love them with the truth and the love of God. And that's hard. No, it's impossible apart from God. God's Spirit has to give you love in your heart for that kind of a person. And you need to ask Him to. So here's what we know. We know that God loves us and that we love others because He first loved us. God loves you. Tag, you're it. You ever play tag when you were a kid? Tag, you're it. We used to play this game. It's called freeze tag. I don't know if you ever played. Remember that? Okay, I was, I'm not the only one. Freezer tag or freeze tag. And, you know, you got tagged and, you know, you, you had to freeze. I can't remember. It was like if someone tagged you again, you could get unfrozen or something. But tag, you're it. Except instead of freezing, love. We love because God first loved us. He initiated this relationship with us because he so loved us. Understand that. And you don't deserve it, and neither do I. He loved us long before we ever responded to his love, even while we were yet sinners. So that jerky person that lives in your building or that you work with that you just don't like, you're that person to God. And he loved you anyway. We know that God expects us to love others in the same way that he loves us. And we would be lying and living a lie if we hated our brothers. Listen, racism, and by the way, there's only one race. It's the human race, right? You know, like the idea of, of races is really racist. Can I say that? The idea of races is really racist. It's a Darwinian concept that somehow certain groups of people are subspecies of the human race. So when you say, oh, he's of this race or that race, you're actually speaking racist talk. There's only one race, and it's the human race. What racists are are persons who look at the human race and divide people into different categories and treat them differently because of one reason or another. Whether it's white, black, language, whatever it is that that they don't like about that person or makes them different. We talked a little bit about this recently. That is hatred. You understand that's hatred? You can hate sin, and you can hate what people do but you can't hate people. And, and when you hate someone just because they're different than you, not because of what they do or their behavior, and you shouldn't hate them anyway, even for that, you're a hateful person. Don't tell me you love God. Because God loves them. And this is true regardless of what you say, whether you're a heretic like the Gnostic or just a Christian who just hates certain groups of people. It's not true. It's only true if you believe the truth of God's word and act upon it by loving others. It's only true that you actually love God, is what I'm saying. And we're called to love our invisible God by loving our visible brother. Who is my brother? All mankind. All mankind is a very broad definition. There is no one on this earth, no human being on this earth you're not called to love. That's really tough, isn't it? No, it's impossible. That's why we have the Spirit of God living in us. 
We simply cannot love God and hate our brother at the same time. Can't be done. And we show that we love God by loving our brother, and we show that we don't love God by hating our brother. So, as I asked Anthony to come up, this is a good litmus test for us. You know your heart, or maybe you don't, but God knows your heart. Your heart's deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Well, God knows your heart. Jeremiah tells us God knows your heart. And maybe he showed you your heart tonight, a little bit. And now what are you going to do about that? Well, it's pretty simple. You need to love your brother, your sister, those around you, your neighbors, your co-workers, your family members. There is really no one in this world that you're not called to love. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for this encouragement. The character of fellowship is love. Lord, we want to live in your spirit and love as you loved. And we need your spirit's power and anointing, the fruit of the spirit, which is love, the gifts of the Spirit, which show love, Lord, to love this wicked world. It's real easy for us to to identify the spirit of Antichrist and the spirit of falsehood and, and allow that sort of hate in our hearts, but that is not it at all. We're called to reach the world with your love, God's love, that all the world may know who you are, why you came, that you died on a cross for their sins and rose again on the third day, and that you're coming again to judge the living and the dead. May we share that truth in love. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.